0: and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobek Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello! Hello and welcome to the Hopcast Book Show, episode number one hundred and twenty. Five, Welcome to the show. My name is Adrian Hobart.
1: My name is Rebecca Collins.
0: And together we run Hobec Books, UK independent publishers, of the following four genres.
1: Thrillers.
0: Mysteries.
1: Suspense.
0: And crime. <laughs> and as you can probably hear in the background, we are joined by Aki, our cat, the Hobec cat, who is very satisfied with herself because... For the first time in 2023, she caught a mouse last night, brought it in triumphantly into the bedroom and was promptly lifted bodily with mouse back outside by you.
1: I think I should tell my version of the story. So I was deeply asleep when I felt a hand pat me on my hip. Yes. Cat, cat, the voice said. Mouse, the voice said. (laughs) And so I, I... Uh, immediately yeah. leapt out of bed after about five minutes of coming out of sleep. Yes, <laughs> grabbed I, I, cat.
0: <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I just hate that moment, that sound that she makes when she comes in with a mouse. Anyway, that's that's a, a, a diversion. Let's get into uh, mentioning our fabulous guest this week. It's Unnina Leostotir from Iceland, and Unnina uh, is a crime author, a playwright a writer of young uh, adult fiction, a former journalist, and many other things to boot.
1: Oh, I mean, we had so much to talk about, didn't we? It was fantastic. It was, it was a brilliant interview on it a was... lovely sunny day. It really lifted our spirits, didn't it?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it was brilliant. So Yanina Leostotir is our, our uh, guest this week, and uh, we'll catch up with her in just a few moments after we get through our usual trawl. Of publishing news, <laughs> and I think the most significant uh, piece of publishing news for us as a small independent publisher is actually something that was announced, uh, say, about three weeks ago. I think yeah. we, we got a we got an email from Amazon saying they were going to do this, uh, which is actually quite unusual for Amazon to actually warn publishers that they're going to do something. It tends to just happen, then you have to second guess. But on this occasion, I don't think they had a choice really. No, and so that is the increase. In printing costs. Now, it ought to be said, in fairness, KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing, printing costs, that is the, uh, you know, you've probably ordered a paperback from Amazon, and if you look at the back, it says printed by Amazon UK, or Mm. wherever it might be. Um, They've kept their print costs at the same rate for a very long time. I was
1: going to say, this is the first time it's changed, at least since we've been publishing, so that's three years. Exactly three years, actually.
0: Yeah. Um, now, this is significant in the sense that, obviously, that then squeezes uh, one's margin considerably uh, when print costs go up. But in, in detail, I'll just tell you what uh, what's happened. And it it um, is actually changing on the 20th of June. So it's not happened quite yet, but it's imminent. And uh, they are going to increase in the fixed cost for all paperback and hardcover books to cover the higher cost of materials, suppliers and labour. A new fixed cost. Per, and per page cost for paperback and hardcover books with large trim sizes to cover the additional costs to print these books, and they define a large trim size is either more than six point one two inches or one hundred fifty five millimeters in width, or more than nine inches, two hundred twenty nine millimeters in height.
1: Oh right, that doesn't apply to us then.
0: No, because we we do the UK standards trade right, hmm. um, and. Uh, you know this is uh, a significant impact on margin yeah again further pressure because already it is clear that when we do sh- uh, shortish print runs with someone like clays the cost has gone up monumentally uh, in, in recent months
1: yeah so yeah it was like sort 20% wasn't it in within a couple of months that was a while ago now so it's, it's going to be even more now
0: it's it's closer to 50% now more expensive to do a print run than it was. Um So Amazon are, are reacting to that. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that it's uh going to be, you know, uh a sort of massive, massive impact, but it does have an impact because at the same time, you know, your, your margins go down. And we've been saying for some time on this podcast, but we haven't yet acted on it, that paperback costs will have to go up.
1: Yeah, so... Uh, you know uh, prices
0: that is much yeah, you know, so to, to market we,
1: we we have been slightly increasing the price of some of our new books when pr- two years ago we would have priced them at a, at a price 9.99 but we haven't gone back and increased the price of any of our previously published books
0: yeah we'll need to look at that very very carefully um, clearly when those pr- print price prices go up the, the margin is squeezed yet further and it's it's, it's difficult. I, I think the nature of those Amazon printing, though, uh, they're not as good as if you, you do go to a, a, a dedicated printing factory mm. um, outfit. And, in fact, we ought to mention that we're actually going to see – we're on a factory visit at the end of the month. 26th of June, we're off to CPI, who are Clay's big rivals. We use Clay's at the moment. But CPI have established a new relationship, as we mentioned on the in the news section a few weeks ago, with Gardeners the number one distributor in the UK for and, books and, and indeed actually, internationally.
1: They're actually physically located next to Gardeners.
0: That's exactly it. So there is this symbiotic relationship that allows you know Gardeners to inform CPI when there's a shortage and those books to get printed without us having to action them which is a big change. It
1: will be a massive change for us and it it, it will juice the admin involved in print uh, publishing books so from my point of view it'd be fantastic
0: okay so we're going to go see them we've got a three and a half hour visit booked in uh which we got through the independent publishers guild and it is going to be i mean i think this could be a, a significant uh piece of learning for us actually yeah. we're going to learn a lot from, from, from making this it. relationship so let's uh, let's see how that goes but that's that's to come so amazon print prices have gone up there's also another change under the bonnet which caught us not caught us out but Nonetheless, we only found out because we were trying to to uh, do something we've done for some some months, in fact, a couple of years now, which is in the past. You know, if you're setting up a book in Kindle Direct Publishing, you were given in the past two categories.
1: Yeah, so you could select two categories when you set up the book, but the the choice is very limited. So fiction, crime and mystery. Um, it could be fiction, contemporary, you know, as is, broad is as It was as stark as, as that, a, yeah,
0: very, very broad categories. And then it became clear if you, were, you know, certain websites made it clear that there actually was an opportunity to write to them and ask for another eight categories to be added yes. to each title.
1: So the way you do this, there is a. it's quite hard to find. In the dashboard, you would find um, it through the help system and it would... List all the things you might want help with. One was change my categories. You click on that, it gives you a window. It was sort of the framework of uh, you put in the ASIN, you put in the, the string of category you want. So um, it would be Kindle Store, ebook, crime, uh, sorry, fiction, um, literary fiction. You could then go crime, then you could go back to li- sometimes literary fiction would follow that. Then, you know, it would go so.
0: Well, it would, what they were described as by, I mean, I we um, subscribed to a new service this week, which will give us a great deal more market insight, something called KLytics, And they call those sub sub categories. Yes. So there's main categories, sub categories, and then sub sub, which, you know, goes up. I think there are around 2000 sub sub categories within the Amazon empire, but they don't, make that obvious and it's hard to find them. You can sometimes follow the tree by clicking on a book and looking at the categories that it's it's being uh it's a top top seller in.
1: Yeah, so I used to spend I would say a couple of hours per title on Amazon dot UK and Amazon.com, sorry, co.uk and on dot com finding these these strings of to the to categories we wanted and that's per book. So it was very time consuming, very fiddly, but the reason you do this is because it helps your ranking in categories. So you can get your bestseller tag. And in the past, you, once you got your bestseller tag, you had that for life, didn't you? But that's not...
0: So they've changed that. Uh, your bestseller tag is is, um, is temporary. It's just while it's not, you are not, You know, It's not, not just for Christmas. It's, you know, it's not <laughs> for life either. Um, it is it is a short, short-term thing now. So that bestseller tag used to be it associated with your book forever, and that was something that everyone chased, and that is no longer uh, pertinent because Amazon have got wise to it. The other thing they've done, and this is what we were leading to, having described the old system, is that they are now not allowing you to nominate a further eight categories. They are limiting you at, subs- at, the, at the start point where you enter your book into the system to three categories.
1: Yes, however... They've changed the way that you select categories at that point. So you have more choice from the beginning than you used to. And you have three, obviously, instead of two. So in a way, it is better because you can pick fairly niche categories or subcategories. They're not like mounting to erotica anymore. But I, uh, the example um, we can talk about is uh, The Bad Neighbour. So when it was published, I wanted to use the old system. KDP emailed me and says, you can't use this system now. You've got to go back into the dashboard. And I picked three categories um, that were fairly well, niche but very relevant to the book. Yes. And she's number one in two of them. So I actually prefer it now. And this is
0: Jenny Ensel's The Bad, Bad Neighbour. Um, and if you haven't caught our special uh, mini sewed, which we released <laughs> uh, middle of this week, take a look. Because it's it's fabulous. It's half an hour where we celebrate the bad neighbour being number one for two occasions. We speak to Jenny. We hear readings by professional actresses. It is pretty special.
1: And she has still got her orange tag. Yep. Today, so it's it's good.
0: Yeah, she's, you know <laughs> it has done very well. We did launch at ninety nine p. We ought to stress that ninety nine cents, and that has had uh, a big impact. And on, it's still available on its at that price. Absolutely. We're keeping it going because, you know, it is paying paying off. It works. Um, and that's been an, a useful experiment and uh, the food for thought for the future. So those are the changes under the bonnet at Amazon at the moment. And, uh, you know, they are significant. Now, our next story.
1: So um, there's another story in the bookseller. This is about... Um what people use as their form of escapism now what if i said to you what is your favorite form of escapism what would you say youtube in fact we talked about this in um
0: in the our, interview didn't we with Yanina.
1: yeah so yours is definitely youtube random videos sometimes educational ones has to be said um, oh
0: very i mean you know <laughs> i would say the the balance of the stuff that i watch is uh informational yeah uh, it, 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 you know, it contains information of of of, of pertinence um with my pet subjects, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a military h- historian, particularly World War II. Love all that stuff, and I watch a lot of documentaries and and tidbits around that, and, and analysing whether an aircraft was any good or not. Or
1: so you're not watching funny cat videos, are you? No,
0: I'm not. I'm not watching trash like that. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, then there's pet subjects like my football team, Man United, and uh, sometimes uh, I have to. <laughs> this is an insight into my life, but. My um, my younger son, James, uh, is very, very keen on uh, WWE wrestling. And so I like to keep across what's going on in that world so that we can have a conversation about it. Anyway. Every every day.
1: (laughs) After that (laughs) long explanation of of what you like to do to escape. Um, I am in 33% of adults, apparently. So mine is reading. 33% of adults apparently choose reading as their form of escapism. And that is more people than choose going to the pub.
0: Well, yes, extraordinary. And the number one still is television at 54%.
1: Yeah. Look at it, social media is lower than reading, which is cheering, isn't it? It's 27%. It
0: it is. It is. I think there's (laughs) there's a certain fatigue around social media at the moment, um, quite understandably, because it's tired, isn't it? But it is still the number one principal uh, form of marketing for a company like ours. Uh, You know, which – and it's difficult to find – a way of doing it so that you don't become part of the spam
1: this is quite interesting though because they also they ask those people about um their reading and uh nearly half of those people say so they keep their books so they buy books and keep them so there's houses full of books not yep. unlike us no
0: <laughs> just um, stacks everywhere where we look the books everywhere a
1: third of those people give their books to family and or friends and i know that very keen readers don't do that. I don't. I don't lend my books to family and friends.
0: No, that's true. I have in the past, and never seen them again. So,
1: and this is I'm shocking. Reluctant. I think this is shocking. Seven percent throw them away. They don't even give them to charity. They throw them away because twelve percent give them to charity. Seven percent of people throw their books away. That's terrible. That
0: is terrible. That is terrible. But they don't like clutter. <laughs> they wouldn't like being here. That's for yeah, sure. But,
1: okay. Yes, I don't. You can not, like, clutter, but you can give them to people or, you know.
0: So what's our conclusion? I mean, it is encouraging to see that, you know, still a third of the population of adults surveyed in this thing still turn to books as their principal form of entertainment and escapism.
1: Yeah, I think that's very encouraging because it was quite a while ago where we covered a story about how many books uh, the average adult read a year, and it was something like two, wasn't it? Yeah. So... You
0: know, <laughs> yeah. Well, that might still be the case. <laughs> it might take them a long time to read it. <laughs>
1: well, it could, it could be the OED. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's one of their books.
0: Our final story is um, leads naturally onto our interview with Janina um, because she's a close friend of the person I am going to mention now, who's been on the program, Kate Moss, and indeed, husband Greg Moss was on the week uh, before that, uh, but uh, Kate Moss. Has been delighted to announce that there is a n- now a new non-fiction women's prize, um, women's prize for non-fiction, which will be beginning next year. Uh, she announced that in February, but the 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 news this week is they found a very big sponsor and Family Tree Company, Find My Past are going to sponsor this new award, which is going to run for a minimum three years. This sponsorship and uh, it is uh, it's a big significant. Philip in the um, in that prize. I mean, when we talked to Kate Moss about the Women's Prize for Fiction and the hostility and difficulty with which she faced when she launched it all those years ago, twenty eight years ago, how everyone said, "Well, who's going to want to? You know, it's not credible. Who cares? All that sort of stuff Mm. from the industry." It's become a very, very significant thing, and in fact, um, the reason we mention it is because uh, inspired by Kate. Yeah, Janina Leostotir set up a prize for women's fiction in Iceland, yeah. which has become very significant, but also faced five years it's... of people saying it's never going to work and not backing it and all this sort it of It was thing.
1: interesting, wasn't it, that they had very similar experiences but very similar results, and it's encouraging. Who was the sponsors again, did you say?
0: Find My Past.
1: Find My Past? Past. What do they do, Find My Past.
0: Well, you know, if you tap in your details of your grandparents or whatever, then they'll start figuring out your family tree stuff.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Right. <laughs> Is it something around my pronunciation of Find My Past? I thought you said,
1: yeah, well, it sounds like Find My past, which <laughs> doesn't sound like your pronunciation. We like have it.
0: this debate all the time. You're a bath girl and I'm a bath.
1: Yes, you like to mow the grass when you do mow the grass, and I mow the grass.
0: Yeah, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> well, I'm saying it correctly. Anyway, right. Well, uh, let's get to our interview then with Janina Leostottir, who appeared at CrimeFest on the panel with our own Anthony Dunford.
1: I know we forgot to mention that to her, didn't we? But
0: we did. We did fail to mention that to her. But Janina is uh, one of the key figures in Icelandic literature. If, uh, you know, not too too fine a point on it. I mean, she really is very significant. As you said, she's launched a Women's Fiction Prize, which has become a very important facet yeah, of but... Icelandic uh, literature. But what came through very strongly was the wonderful connection that Icelandic people have with books in general.
1: <laughs> and and uh, we learned a new phrase, didn't we?
0: A book in your stomach, being born with a book in your stomach. Everyone
1: in Iceland is born with a book in their stomach. And I absolutely love that.
0: Yeah, that is fantastic. Um, so, Janina is also the uh, wife of the former Prime Minister of Iceland.
1: And that's an interesting story, too. So,
0: that's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. You, honestly, this is a blockbuster of an interview. <laughs> we got so much from it. And it is with delight that we speak to Janina Leostotier. It's a tremendous honor to speak to Janina Lejostotir over in Iceland. Fantastic to speak to you. Welcome.
2: Thank you so
0: much. Nice to be with you. And we're so excited to have you on the show because you are a, a writer of so many different aspects of, of, of literature. So it's, you know, it spans from from uh, young adults to plays and more recently crime. Hey. And that really is, uh, you know, such a breadth to draw on. Um, but first of all, let's, let's get to origin story. I mean, at what stage did you want? I mean, did you want to write and what time? Time of your life? Did you actually sit down and write?
2: Ah, <laughs> oh, that's a good question because I think I've always been writing. Like so many writers, they say, you know, it's just been since you were a kid. Uh, but it never occurred to me that I could do this for a living. Uh, and first, I started in journalism. I was there for twenty years, but uh, somebody came and asked me during my twenty years in journalism to write uh, the biography of a very famous Icelandic clergyman was a spiritualist and this was the first time I had thought about writing books and I immediately said yes and uh, that's started the ball rolling that's now 35 years ago today so it just happened by (laughs) chance really
0: happy anniversary (laughs) happy anniversary what kind of But that's, I mean, that's biography and, and non fiction. So it's mm-hmm. still a transition. I mean, clearly that's drawing on your journalistic background uh, in terms of research and indeed tone and the, the way that you structure things. But that's still a, a big transition when you mm-hmm. went into fiction.
2: Yes. Well, I wrote two biographies to begin with first, The Clergyman, and then a very famous Icelandic anti feminist. And I wrote these two books and they were totally different. And when you're writing a biography, you have to, at least in Iceland, you you talk. You have to have permission from the guy or the woman who you're, you know, writing about. You interview them and they have the last word about what goes in and what doesn't. So when I had done two of these, I decided I want to do something where I can choose everything and decide. And then if I don't like something... A person, or character in the book. I'll just bring a bus, and they will get driven over by a bus.
1: You can't do that in a biography.
0: No, <laughs> but I, I'm staggered by that. That is it a legal requirement to have final refusal if you're the subject of the book?
2: Yes, and also in journalism. At least when I was still a journalist, it was I was in first. A weekly paper or sort of a news thing and you always had to show everything except the headline to the person you were interviewing I don't know whether it's still like this yeah I know you must be very staggered it's it's cozy for the interviewee but very difficult for the journalist but maybe they have changed it now I don't know
0: well that that is extraordinary I mean I I guess that as a journalist myself, I mean, I was a broadcast journalist with the BBC and um, before that in local radio independently. And I suppose it was a personal piece of integrity that I could stand up everything that I did. Um, but at the same time, some stories required you to almost surprise the person that was the subject at the last minute. You do all the research to find out whether they've done something wrong and then you present it to them, um, as we call it in, in, in the UK, doorstepping.
2: Uh-huh. You know?
0: Mr. So and So, answer the questions about such and such. You know that sort of thing, yeah. uh, and yeah. that was kind of part of the drama of of broadcast television and radio. Um, so it's that's I I just find it very very difficult to imagine how how you would do that.
2: Yeah, especially
1: if you've got a deadline.
2: Yeah, but still, you know the deadline, or the 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 person you're interviewing, he he or she knows the deadline, and it's all collaboration, or it was in my time. You know, before I became a journalist, you even had to... And this was not while I was in journalism, but you, the people before me, they had to hand over the questions beforehand also. Mm -hmm. So the the person knew exactly what the interview was going to be about. No doorstepping there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Very different. Well,
0: I mean, there are times when... And actually, this is something that is a big debate in journalism at the moment in the sense that quite a lot of people... As, as part of the guarantee of access they want to know the questions ahead of time they in fact won't give you access to a celebrity a politician unless you you give those questions but in the UK that is seen as a admission of defeat almost in fact most organizations would say no we're not prepared to do the interview on that basis yeah. that's really extraordinary mm.
2: yeah well, I, th- I hope Times are different I don't know Uh, I only give interviews now don't take them and it's always about my books so it's always very pleasant and uh, and, you know no problem so I don't know whether it's still active or not but this is I, I stopped being a journalist in 2005 so up until then this is what you had to do.
0: Absolutely. No. Well, I'm, I'm I'm sort of reeling from this. <laughs> <laughs> Culturally, it's so different. And of course, at the moment in the UK, we're watching with interest Prince Harry's attempts to humble one of our big newspaper groups over phone hacking, uh, and maybe, on current evidence, not doing a very good job of that so far. But we'll we'll, we'll leave that there. Um, so, in terms of when you started to write fiction and you wanted that freedom uh, that that gave you. Uh, what was it like when you when you first started exploring your fiction voice?
2: Um, I was still a journalist, so it was just something I did during the weekends and holidays, just because I wanted, I had sort of got the knack of it when I started, when I wrote the biolo- biographies. So I just couldn't stop, and I still can't stop. Lots of my friends are <laughs> retired now, but I can't think of retiring because once you start and you get the bug, and obviously, you know, I've written 21 books since the first biography. So, I I just got the bug and I started doing it while I was a single mother and a journalist. And I then finally in 2005, my now wife she sort of pushed me off the cliff and said, "You either do it properly and full time, or you, you know, you see how it where it takes you." And now we are 17 books later.
1: So that must have been quite a scary moment, though, being told, you know, if you're going to do it, do it.
2: Yes, I wanted to prove myself to her for having belief in me. So, yes, I wanted to do it really well.
0: I'm I'm fascinated, now you've mentioned your wife. I mean, when I read your biography, of course, she was the Prime Minister of Iceland. Um, And from a journalist's point of view, I mean, having been a journalist, then being within the inner corridors of power and the international scene, um, did you feel a little odd there? Because it is, you know, you're looking in as a journalist and trying to find out what's going on. And then when you're in the middle, you're perhaps trying to protect each other from from information getting out. I don't know if that's that's fair.
2: Yes, absolutely. And especially because our relationship was a secret for 15 years before we started living together. And she was um, par- a parliamentarian and then uh, a minister for, Minister of Social Affairs while we were a secret. And everybody wanted an interview with her and they were wondering, you know, in my workstation, how do we get an interview with her? And you know her, you can't you do something? And, you know, she was my partner and I couldn't say anything. So very strange situation.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Actually, this—if you forgive me, because of the 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 way that my mind works—I'm just making (laughs) making a travels. No, no, no. But I'm making a connection here with your most recent book, the one that you presented at CrimeFest this year, Deceit. Um, So, in a way, you are very, very intimately aware of the difficulties of living a secret or, or protecting a secret in, in in and presumably having to lie to protect that secret does did that inform some of the work on deceit
2: i think it probably did and i think it probably influences everything i do because when you go through i mean most people could maybe say okay 15 months i can i can live with it but 15 years it must mold you in a in a big way having such a big secret and when I finally wrote a book about our relationship, I called it "Johanna and I," uh, because th- those words I could never speak. I could never say, "Johanna and I went to the cinema," or "We are planning a trip abroad," or something. It was just such a relief to be able to have it on the cover of a, a book, because that was those words were never together in a sentence. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. no, that absolutely. I
1: mean, yeah, I mean that's a long time, isn't it? So. You must have got so used to living like that, though.
2: Uh, I don't think I ever got used to it. I was always rebelling, and I was banging doors and crying and saying, "I'm never talking to you again." And then, obviously, I did. And you know, it was a, a turbulent time. All these, yeah.
0: it is. It you know because I think both of us can empathise in the sense that when we got together, this we were both married to other people and. <laughs> um you know for six months that was our reality we were having to 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 hide you know our love was was too strong to deny and eventually we 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 you know emerged but it is so so corrosive isn't it because you're having there's so much conscious thought in trying to remember what you've said to 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 other people (laughs) And, and also that feeling of Oh, if only you knew the truth! I'd love to, and and also that I can see that frustration because you want to scream how you're feeling, but you actually you're having to and bury just share it. With
1: people, people you care about, you want to share yeah. with as well. I mean, Absolutely. that's you know on the yeah. basic level, that's really hard. And, you
2: know, it, I wanted to go to the top of it. We have a big church in the central town on top of a hill, and I wanted to go up there and just scream and tell everybody. And I was so happy, but so having to suppress it. It's like putting a lid on a boiling pot of water or something. So maybe it's helped me as a writer because I was dealing with loads of emotions and always this, like you said, secrets and who have I told what? And uh, then my mother guessed because she saw my Johanna's car outside my house quite a bit. And when she uh, started asking, uh, I admitted it, that it's a relationship. And then my mother, who was a teetotal person, and she absolutely hated alcohol, but she said, oh, I was hoping that you were just drinking together. <laughs> so I really disappointed her. <laughs>
0: oh, but, but uh, has that been...
1: <laughs> I imagine my mother saying something
0: uh, like that. <laughs> possibly, but I mean, has that, <laughs> now, has that now been resolved as well, your relationship with your mother in terms of, you know, how things worked out with Johanna?
2: she became absolutely uh, thrilled with Johanna when my mother died in 2014. Uh, but before she had, you know, she had always been like right wing in politics and my father was left wing. And she never changed her opinion for my father, although they had this fantastic relationship. But then she met Johanna, who is a social democrat, and she became converted. And really? Whenever she, yeah, she didn't drive, so she was taking taxis a lot as he used every drive to tell the taxi driver to vote social democrat. <laughs> so yeah, she was absolutely loved her.
1: That's so a brilliant
2: story. Well. <laughs> it's
1: like a good book. And it's well. It reminds me of the conversation yes. I had with my mother about Brexit once. It <laughs> so oh. was sat in a cafe and my mum my mum said, Well I'm not I don't want to be in Europe anymore. And I said, why mother? And she explained and I said, no listen to me yeah. at the end of the conversation she said oh okay okay I've changed my mind great yeah it can happen you just have
2: to be you know just very open so once yes. even once he finally got to hear the truth and got over it everything was fine
0: and in terms of the wider public reaction when it went I mean your mother figured it out but when when you eventually we're in a position to, um, to go public with the relationship that it was long established. How did that go?
2: Well, then we come to another strange thing about the Icelandic media. We moved in in 2000, and I was still, for five more years, I was working in journalism. And obviously, our neighbours noticed that we were living there, and the story went everywhere. And we got phone calls, both from my colleagues and other media, saying, can we interview you? Can we tell people about your relationship? And we just said, no, okay, bye. <laughs> Good, <But> then, yeah. <laughs> they didn't write about it. Because that's no, not, like. you know, they 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 don't write about it if you don't want to.
0: That is um well, that's quite liberating for a society, I think. It must be in a way having that, that level of of say in the way that you are treated publicly mm. is um a great contrast to what we're going I through in the UK, and actually, yeah. you know, I can see that being a real positive because
1: do too, because in this country that would not happen. There's no way they would hound no. you and hound you until they got something out of you, and it's but not good now, for the mental I... health, is it? When they do that,
2: no. <laughs>
1: but I think this wouldn't
2: happen today because when Johanna became uh, prime minister in 2009, you know, the 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 just everything blew up and we got. Uh, phone calls from all over the world asking for interviews. We said no, but they wrote about this anyway, and the Icelandic media too. So you can only keep them away for so long.
0: Mm, Sure. Now, in terms of, you know, in that period of your life, you know, with Johanna being the prime minister, no less, uh, did that influence your work? Did it get in the way of... Your passion for writing and being able to, to 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 write because of the the commitments that 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 come with with that role and and, and being the partner of the prime minister. Uh,
2: quite the opposite, really, because it gave me all the time in the world to write. Because she just left home and was at her office twenty four seven almost.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, and, not, it's, a, it's a life, isn't it, rather than a job. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, and especially because she was elected uh, to have. Iceland when we had the financial crisis and three of our banks went bankrupt so the government had to come in and save the banks so Iceland wouldn't become bankrupt as a nation so it was a huge job very very difficult and she was just you know working all the time so I had all the time in the world to write and my, my publishers they wanted to publish and it didn't really matter who I was married to. So no problem. Yeah, that's good.
0: In terms of what support you can offer, I mean, you know, that's a... How do you you help somebody through a period of that level of crisis where, you know, you don't know what's coming around the corner next? Uh, It it wasn't... I mean, you know, don't have to think back too far. That was an apocalyptic economic situation, wasn't it?
2: Absolutely. And especially hard in Iceland because... We are a nation of 380,000 people. And so it's a very small pond and everybody's eggs were in the same basket. And it was really, really hard. But uh, I changed our home into a five-star hotel. She didn't have to do anything. She just came home. There was food and there was clean clothes. And, you know, I bought all the present birthday and Christmas presents for everybody and attended the parties, uh, you know, and... She, she just could concentrate on work.
0: So. Are you paying
1: attention to this? <laughs>
0: uh, yes, I'm paying attention to it. But uh, as far as I can see, Rebecca... When... you
1: are a prime minister, but... Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, any economic crisis that we're facing is is much more than Iceland's d- default. Yeah, OK. <laughs> now, li- it, it, you're in a very fertile country for literary achievements I mean th- it is staggering how impactful Iceland noir is at the moment but in t- indeed all manner of um of areas of literature have been uh have grown an international reputation in the last 20 that years at an extraordinary level so being that small pond does that <laughs> that does that is it does that inspire does that give you energy if you've got uh, I mean I know you're you are the, the founder of the, the literary prize for, for women's fiction over in, in, in Iceland. So that's obviously a focus and a fulcrum and you're still very involved with that. But does that um, community support and energize you?
2: Yes, uh, most definitely. Because I think actually, uh, I can't quote you, but I think we have some kind of a world record in published books per capita and uh, usually before all the books are more or less published before Christmas and they were and they still are a Christmas present uh, very very popular Christmas present in Iceland hardback books and they are published you know I think we had 800 books last year in this small country that's also obviously counting small books for children and stuff like that so it's not all big novels but still yeah and it really the, the environment is such that I think more or less everybody here thinks they could write a novel or some kind of a book if they just sat down and gave themselves time. So it, it's that kind of environment. We talk about having a book in your stomach. Everybody has a book in their stomach and it's just a matter of whether they get them out or not. I love
1: that. A book in your stomach.
0: Mm. I think that might be the name of the podcast this week. A book in your stomach. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that is awesome uh yeah i mean that is per capita that is an incredible rate of, of...
1: population was and so i was mentally doing the math and thinking wow compared to yeah. you know mo- america for example
0: uh, and, uh, one of your tweets i saw you know you were thanking people for the number of people who'd uh borrowed your books from icelandic libraries and indeed the audiobook numbers were, were enormous Yeah. Uh, it, it, it you know, just from that, I can see that you've got a you're a country where even in an economic crisis, the libraries didn't come under the pressure that they have in this country, for instance.
2: No, exactly. It was more difficult during COVID because then they had to close, but they managed somehow. You could borrow the books online, and they made them ready for you, and they, you know, sanitized all, all ah. these covers. So yeah, people. That's exactly when people had to have. More t- books, you know, when everybody was during lockdown. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, we have a, this huge culture for for libraries, and I am so grateful to them. I I am really uh, inc- it's incredible. I think the total amount last year of borrowing of my books was twenty three thousand, which is just amazing in such a small place.
1: Mm. yeah do yeah, I mean you know like we I love libraries, but the, in this country they they are being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, and yeah. shut down all the little ones, the village ones and the
0: the mobile ones yeah. they're I mean, all it's, being swept it, away it's, it's yeah
1: heartbreaking
2: yeah. <laughs> we have we have libraries in all uh, schools, and they are the ones that are getting squeezed now, so authors are really worried about this because. Reading when you're a kid is something that stays with you when you're grown up, so it's so important. And we're a little bit worried about this because they're not being financed properly.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, I think that's. I mean, it's interesting you say that because we've just taken over running the Henshaw Short Story Competition, and the proceeds this time. For,
1: and I think every time, actually. Yeah. It, well,
0: we were approached by to a school by a sixth form uh, college in in Worcestershire who said that they actually cannot afford to give kids a book or get access to them at the moment, that that they've got no budget. And so we're going to make sure that the proceeds go to them. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so the competition runs, what is it, uh, four times a year. So for each one, we'll choose a different school. I don't know how we're going to choose, but...
0: Well, you know, we'll put it out there and see see who comes forward. Well, I
1: think they will. I think they'll come forward. Sounds
0: like it. I mean, unfortunately, it's necessary. Um, In terms of the... This literary tradition, then in Iceland, is it down to a uh, a, a, is there an oral tra- tradition that underpins that culture from I don't know uh, Viking culture or something like that?
2: <laughs> yes, we also have a, a very long tradition of writing, you know, the sagas, they are yes. yeah. years old, and people used to know them by heart, and also when we were. Uh, very, you know, in the in the old days hundreds of so years ago, people used to go from one farm to another and telling stories then you got food and a warm bed for the night and then you went to another farm and you told you know, maybe the stories that you heard in, in the farm before and so yeah, it's, it's certainly a tradition here.
0: Yeah, do you feel, I mean there's a big emphasis in this country at the moment with Nordic crime fiction. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly from Sweden and, and Norway, and indeed some from Denmark. Um, and would, does it upset you if it gets if Icelandic crime fiction gets swept into that into that no, sort of trope?
2: I think that's perfect. I mean, we are all related. In Scandinavia and Iceland and the Faroe Islands—we are all one family. So, no, we are happy to be, you know, with them in the pot. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's good. Yeah, that is good. Now to see um, when it, when it's translated and you've got uh, you know your your UK publishers who are brilliant at finding great work from uh, different countries and, and translating it, how much say do you have in the way that that translates? Because obviously you know your, your command of English is is excellent, and so you'll be in a position to judge the eventual translation as as a product. did, did you have much say in that?
2: You should ask my translator. <laughs> quite the <laughs> best. Uh, well, he allowed me to read and, and do some comment. You know, I, I yes, I am a perfectionist. I'm. <laughs> what can I say? And I have a lot of opinions about everything, and not least about my books. So I think maybe I was a little bit difficult because, yeah, it's it's different when it's Hungarian or some other language, and you you've no idea whether it's good or not, or whether it's, you know, exactly what you want it to be, the translation. So because I, I figured I have some, you know, I have an opinion on this, and he allowed me to to comment. And, and yeah. So... Maybe, this is Quentin
0: Bates, is it?
2: Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> the novelist and translator.
1: Par yeah.
0: Well, fantastic. Yeah,
1: that's, oh, that's good, though, isn't it? Because it, it should be sort of collaboration you know like you're saying in these two ter- these situations where you speak the language as well so you know yes so.
2: and I have also been on the other side of the desk I have translated books from English into Icelandic Ruth Rendell novels and all sorts of things and I know that you don't have to translate every single word it's it's more important to get the uh, the feeling and what's being said not to just go by each single word. So, yeah, I I have sympathy with the translator as well. Absolutely. (laughs) And that's
0: interesting. I mean, so when you're translating Ruth Rendell, did did that give you a uh, grid or a sort of foundation for when you'd started to to write crime?
2: Uh, Not really, because what I'm interested in is writing novels about relationships, about families and workplaces and... Mm you know, about modern life and everything, you know, that makes people t- tick. And I had written three such novels and published here in Iceland. And people were always asking me, I'm the publisher, what kind of book is this? Is this so-and-so? They, they couldn't f- find the box to put my books in. So I just decided on a whim to put uh, uh, some sort of a crime in it. Not not always murder, but Crimes, and then I can say I'm writing crime novels. I'm still writing the same kind of novels, but now I can say they are crime novels because I'm not interested in crime really. I'm interested in, you know, how people function together.
1: That's really interesting because I think what you're basically saying is crime is quite a small part of the book in a way. It was-
2: it's what draws you on, keeps you reading. You want to know how this ends and who did it and all that. But still, what's in it for me is making up the characters and, and seeing how they function together. So they, the readers get something out of it, and I get another thing out of it.
0: One of the background elements, uh, with, uh, the setting of Deceit, is the... You just, it's set during the pandemic. And 53,000 uh, dead uh, around the world at this point when, when you do it. Now, we've been, dis- in fact, we did a special podcast this week, which was about our, our latest, uh, second to latest release, mm-hmm. The Bad Neighbor, which is also set in the COVID and actually is it's a big plot driver. Yeah. Did you have many qualms writing about that? Because a lot of authors have just said, we're not going to touch it. Yeah, there are. We're going to carry on as if it never happened.
1: There's not that many books that are set squarely in the pandemic.
2: Exactly. I, for me, it was uh, a wonderful opportunity to have things more squeezed, to make it more difficult for the. There's a couple who are not really on the best of terms. They're an ex married couple who are the ones who are trying to solve the crime. And this makes life more difficult for them. And that's why I like to put it in, in COVID, where it was difficult to, to move around and, and go into people's homes and offices. So for me, it was perfect. And I never gave it the thought that people might not want to read about COVID until I had finished the script and I started checking with people and everybody I asked said, I'm never going to read the book that takes place in COVID.
1: <laughs> but it was too see, late. <laughs> I don't think that's true now, though, because I think people said that at the time or yes. shortly after. But now I think people are finding that element, what you're talking about, the element of, the effect on the mind and on personalities and on relationships of being in close quarters with people and having to um, do something that they used to do before or that they, in normal circumstances would be easy to do. and But th- th- I think people are starting to find that an interesting scenario because it, it, we're, we're distanced enough now that the emotion yeah. of COVID is not quite so... It's dissipating fresh, a bit, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, that's true. Uh, but it was an enormous thing and
2: there was... Because it was worldwide, it's something that everybody can identify. Mm. identify with. So, uh, but for me, it was like a, another tool to to make the story work.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I just looking at, at one review that of that book um, and a plot point really. So we're dealing with COVID, but also you touch on the impact of Huntington's disease for one of the characters. The thirteen-year-old Rebecca is diagnosed with it. And um, I have a friend whose mother was lost to it when she was 42, and she has had this fear of finding out whether genetically she's carrying it too. And it's uh, a such an appalling thing, devastating thing to to to, to suffer from. Um, so, I mean, I, I I find that fascinating that you, you really are not scared to to deal with the impact of illness and the darkness that that brings to people's lives.
2: Yes, and now we come back to uh, what we were discussing regarding journalism and Iceland being a small society, because there is a a family here. It's an extended family where this Huntington's disease is uh, in the genes. And it's obviously it's the most horrible disease. And before I sent the book or my manuscript to the publisher, I asked a man that I know who is married into this family and lost his wife to it, to the disease, I asked him to read over the manuscript because I was ready to change everything that would potentially hurt these people who are so affected by this. So uh, he didn't ask me to change anything. He was just really happy with how I dealt with it. But if he had wanted to, I would have changed something.
0: That's, uh, I mean, this is a big theme at the moment, isn't it, in terms of when you're dealing with issues, taking the care to double check and consult people affected by things that you're writing about. It's very easy to just glibly just shove it in there, as I'm sure some authors must do. You know, let's uh, go down the the list of things that people could have, psychological problems that they might have, which is quite a common thing, isn't it? Get a paragraph up on WebMD and, uh, and base it all on that. but actually. I'm very interested, you know, that you were prepared to, to make those changes if necessary.
2: Mm-hmm. I just, uh, you know, I, I could put myself in their shoes. And this uh, man, I know, you know, he, they have children and I don't know, you know, what their chances are. And I just put myself in their shoes if somebody was making this like a juicy story out of the, the, this terrible thing that your family is dealing with. I just couldn't do it to people who are already suffering enough.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's great to hear. And, you know, but it, it is still a brave thing to do because there is always this pressure to, you know, you want to get the next book out and. Um...
1: Yeah. Cause it takes, obviously it takes longer. If you do, if you're doing putting more into the research and also into consulting, consulting other yeah. people. Um... I
2: also asked, um, I saw, I know a psychologist who was very happy about my I have a series of crime novels, uh, five books that were before this, uh, before Deceit, and she loved the series. I knew this. So I asked her, could you please read the manuscript for Deceit and tell me, am I doing anything wrong? Because I'm obviously not a psychologist. and, And I have to make sure that if people are reading this and they know better, they will not get really angry. Like, Obviously, with police procedural, you have to get the police station correct. And I wanted to do, you know. And she gave me lots of good points about how a psychologist would not say it was too. A question was too leading. He would ask more neutrally, and blah blah blah. So it was good to get her comments as well.
1: I think that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because crime writers, they 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 think nothing of asking police procedural help because they want yeah. to get that absolutely exact yeah. but i wonder how many think of all the other people involved
0: <laughs> yeah i think that's that's fair um it in terms of being um sorry, coming over to things like crime fest this year mm-hmm. uh, how important is the uk littering crime crime fiction scene to you I mean uh, have you made great connections and, and friendships through through that I know that you um, have a you know friendship with Greg and Kate Moss who've been on this show who are fantastic supporters of all things you know in terms of Absolutely. literature yeah so yeah is is the UK a sort of beacon for you
2: <laughs> it is maybe for me personally also because I used to live in the UK in the 70s I went to the University of Essex oh and- right <laughs> Then I, I didn't graduate because they they increased the fees for foreign students. And I was married to a man who was a student as well, an Icelander. So I did the wifely thing and I got a job to support him through his studies. Of course, it was the 70s. The 70s, I, yeah. So I am really attached to the UK. I never really moved back to Iceland. I have sort of one foot in the UK and one foot in Iceland. So it was very important to me. And the community of crime writers in Iceland they are so nice, such nice people that I had not even written my first novel. I was starting on my first manuscript when I attended Iceland Noir and they just embraced me and they gave me a spot on the, on the, on the the panel when I didn't even have a crime novel out. That's fantastic. Yeah so (laughs) I've been embraced by people who are published in the UK and I Joined the Crime Writers Association in the UK, so yeah, it's very important to me. And this was my second time at CrimeFest. Uh, the first time I was with Icelandic crime writers, and we were called the the Ice Queens. And Barry Poshio interviewed us.
0: Well, Barry, um, <laughs> he's um, <laughs> he's terrific. I mean, the uh, I mean, what were, were you at the dinner? I've got to ask. Were you at the dinner on Saturday?
2: Not this time. I had been on the dinner before, so I knew what this was about, it was about. But are you talking about the... Controversy? Uh, yeah. We, yeah, we, yes, we, yes, uh, we so
0: weren't so. there either. And, and, and it, we, we did a long uh, programme about the, the issues it threw up. Um,
1: yeah, so the social media excitement on either side. So yeah. We were talking about the how...
0: Po- the polarised debate yeah. that, that, it, that, that it, it brought forward. I mean, it felt out of character for the event. Let's put it that way.
2: Yes, this is, uh, you know, a hot topic, obviously. And, yeah, I've, I just heard about it afterwards in the bar. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> no, we didn't well,
1: even hear about it in the bar. We'd gone I, I by then. I happily drinking gin and tonic, so. <laughs> um,
0: well, look, at this point, it is time
1: uh,
0: for... <clears throat> excuse me while I do my voice for this. <laughs>
1: okay.
0: Rebecca's random question.
1: Shortly before this podcast... I went out in the garden because the sun is shining and I just lay on the grass and enjoyed just the peace and the quiet. And that is one of my life's little pleasures as I call them. So I'd like to know what is your most pleasurable life's little pleasure? Uh, It's so
2: stale, but reading, you know, it's, uh, I'm happiest or, or maybe even writing. I think, In the in the evening when I'm going to bed, I I always read until I almost faint. You know, I I can't put the book down, and then when I've finally put the book down, then I can hardly go to sleep because I'm looking so much forward to waking up and writing. So it's just I'm doing I'm living my dream and I'm doing what I love most, and I can never enjoy silence like you were enjoying in the garden because I have. In, what is it called? Tinnitus. Tinnitus. Tinnitus.
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh,
2: so I n- never experience quiet or you know anymore. It's been like this for 23 years. So I, I have the high, really nasty tone in my in my head. So, but it disappears when I write. I can't hear anything. I just disappear into my manuscript, and that's my happiest place. That's
1: why I'm never going to retire. I'm going to write until I drop dead.
2: <laughs> Brilliant.
0: That is, that's fantastic. I mean, to be honest, it, you know, the times when I do finally get round to writing, I know exactly what you mean and I feel that pleasure. But the, as ever with me, things that give me probably are good for me and give me pleasure, I tend to... hummus. Hamas. <laughs> <laughs> I tend well. I'm, I'm one of these people who do something intensely for six weeks and then it'll just drift away again. Golf, uh, tennis, got gu- guitar, <laughs> uh, writing, whatever, and, and you know, and it, it'll come round again. But actually, and cooking—that was a big thing for the beginning of the year, wasn't it? And I was thinking oh, about
1: yes, time yes. for
0: MasterChef. To
1: go on MasterChef, so ah.
0: so, <laughs> so all of the, all of that, and I, you know, so I've got a, a range of things that would give me enormous pleasure, but I don't. St- necessarily do them very
1: often I think your life's little pleasure is just scrolling
0: yeah well (laughs) when you've got attention deficit disorder yes it was it was when I first discovered teletext tv you know when you in the back in the 80s that was joy that was joy because there was always something else to look at
1: Yeah, I do remember that (laughs) yeah the way it refresh itself with my I've got so many life's little pleasures oh things like clean sheets um lying in the garden Reading is a big one as well. I do the same as you. I I often on my phone now because we turn the lights out, so I don't want to have the light on. So I'm under the duvet with my phone reading.
2: <laughs> you, you have to give her a Kindle for her next birthday.
0: I, I will. I will. In fact, I nearly got one today. So um, we'll 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 get get around to that. Well, look, um, it has been an absolute pleasure. This has been one of the one of our favourite interviews. Um, we always enjoy them, but this has been fantastic.
1: And the first time Thank we've you. spoken to Iceland. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> speech, we can tick you all anytime. the countries off and on on another country to be ticked off.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. So thank you, you so much. If
2: you here for a visit, you must have, you know, let me know so I can show you a bit of my city.
0: Oh, oh, we, we, would, we would love to. Yeah. Before we go then, um, where can people find you online?
2: Uh, my name, which is maybe a little difficult, it's com. And obviously, if you go on Amazon, you find the and then you can see how my name, how they spell my name.
0: And one, one supplementary on top of that question is: when will, when's the the next book due to come out in translation here? Have you got one ready, yeah. or in, in, I, in the work?
2: Ask Quentin Bates. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
2: He has a pile of books podcast. To <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I I don't I can't answer because I don't know.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to it anyway, but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Janina here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I think it's fair to say, ladies and gentlemen, that when I, we came away from that interview, I soon went on, I, I was passing Rebecca and her computer, and there she was looking up flights to Iceland. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs>
1: Even though my passport has expired, not my passport. Yes,
0: your passport is, is, is in. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, you could imagine this is the conundrum that you keep putting in front of me when I say, come on, get a passport. Um, it's simply that, you know, the plan is we're getting married in December and you're going to change your name. So why spend the money now on a Collins passport?
1: Exactly. Rather yeah.
0: than your married name one. Yeah, Collins Hobart or Hobart or whichever you can. I don't know. Cobart, Cobart, <laughs> or Hobek, Even oh no. <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, you you you're simply too tight to pay for the for a sec, for a change of passport.
1: Well, by the time it arrives, I'll have to change it again, though.
0: Okay, all right. Well, okay. We're not, look, people don't need to hear this <laughs> in argument, do they? Let's be honest. Okay, uh, as ever, we always talk about what's coming up next week. So for the podcast. We have a fabulous guest.
1: Yes, Heather Fit,
0: who is uh, very familiar on the circuit. Yeah, um, at a lot of events was at CrimeFest, and uh, we're really looking forward to, to speaking to Heather. She's got very, you know, um, clear and, and 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 you know, strong views about the crime scene. I think.
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah. So she's quite active on social media and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and so yeah, it'd be good to talk to her about her um, career and.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in terms of work-wise, I'm starting on a new narration project, which I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I've secured um, – I'm, I'm doing some, some non-fiction, and it is it's a biggie. It's a massive book. Uh, it is The First Philosophers, part of the o- Oxford Classics Collection, and it's an American company who hired me to do it, and their rules are, on how to do it are, are much – well, they're different from anything I've done before – um, and the sort of hoops already that I've had to go through to to get ready to, to do this production has been something. So that's going to be uh, a large chunk of my life for the next few weeks, uh, getting that done. Mm. And I'm really looking forward to it. But I've been going through the the names of first philosophers, and um, look, I did a lot of this at university and indeed at A level. So some of them are familiar, but some others, it's <laughs> you know, it is basically word soup.
1: Or it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it,
0: well, uh, it is, uh, you know, you put in a few um, syllables and then add a few more.
1: Alphabety.
0: Yeah, alphabety, you know, syllable, spaghetti. <laughs> it is, uh, it's going to be a, a challenge on that front. Um, so that's a big thing. And uh, we have other things that we're working on. You've, you've been um, having a good old route around in our book descriptions. Yeah,
1: so I've, I've designated today Metadata Sunday. So <laughs> I'm 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 put everything else aside, life, everything, except for a bit of tennis later. And I'm gonna focus on Hobeck Metadata on Amazon and I'm enjoying it so far. I'm learning a lot, so it's good.
0: Yeah, Metadata Sunday, that, that could that could take off. <laughs> Actually, uh,
1: can I, I have a quick question for mm. you because um today I'm on I'm a member of a Facebook group, self published authors or something, and somebody put on and um they said they'd um read a really good Book published by an indie author, fantastic story, great characters, lots of research, but the formatting in the ebook wasn't very good. And so, the, and she said, "So I'm going to write a mediocre review because the ebook formatting was mm. a bit, you know." And the, there's two sides of the argument. Some people saying, "How could you do that? You're supposed to be judging when you write a review. You judge on the story, on the quality of the."
0: Mm.
1: And other people saying, "Well, formatting is all part of the experience, so of course you should." What do you think?
0: I think that's a very fair point. I think that that latter point is important. You know, we spend a lot of time, you spend a lot of time uh, making sure that our books, when you pick them up, feel exactly the same as if it had been published by Big Five.
1: But this is an e-book, so it could have been a technical glitch somewhere along the line.
0: Well, yes, it could be. But I think that, well, uh, we have a, uh, here, let me give you an example. I feel very strongly that Overuse of italicization in books is a no-no for me because I just find it really hard to read. Um, You know, so in any inner thoughts, and if it's a long old passage of inner thoughts, like chapters, you know, it's it's very very difficult. I think so. You know, that would put me. That would make me ill disposed towards the author.
1: But this isn't talking about that sort of thing. It's talking about
0: no, no. I'm just trying to make the wider point that, that that how it looks. Is very important to the experience.
1: Oh, totally, I agree with you. You know,
0: it, it's it's no no coincidence that the traditional book big companies spend an awful lot of time and have huge departments on you know working on the typesetting.
1: Yeah, they. I mean, they, they generally they outsource them now to typesetting companies. There are companies. Yes. A lot, yes. A lot of them based abroad that they that said their function is typesetting.
0: Yeah, um, and, and an
1: independent author doesn't have access to No, that.
0: and we use Vellum to do our books, uh, which is a Mac-based piece of software. So we actually had to buy a Mac to be able to do that, and it has limitations. But you've worked your way around a lot of them and figured out how to make present beautiful books. Um, you know, it, and indeed non-fiction books. That was a particularly difficult challenge with the transformational seller. Well,
1: actually, interesting with interesting transformational with selling, that- I should say. Yeah, so that book I had to create two different versions because the way I formatted it for paperback didn't work in the ebook version. The formatting went everywhere; it was all over the place because the uh, the images and the tables. Mm. So I had to create two different versions.
0: Yeah, and this this you know it's it's a very important part of it. I, I think that if you, it's like certain authors um, will use paragraphs in my in my view, far too often. And then others where there's an obvious point to put a paragraph, don't, and then you get a slab of a whole page of text and I find that very difficult to read. So all of these aspects yeah. are, are very important to the experience of the reader. And ultimately, I believe, unless you're doing something from a stylistic point of view, which is deliberately presented in a, in a certain fashion for an artistic point of view... The the aim of editing, typesetting, the publication process, and indeed the writing, should be to make it as enjoyable and easy for the reader to to enjoy what they're 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 reading.
1: But the purpose of a review on Amazon, though, is that to include all these things.
0: Yeah, I think so because it's about the product. You know, the the writing is only one aspect of it, and this is something that you know, in a wider sense you know, you can be a brilliant writer, but if if your book, you know, feels cheap, looks cheap, badly printed, terrible paper, whatever, badly typeset, you know, it is going to reflect badly on your work and it's not going to impress the reader. And I think that, yes, of course, the story is important. Yes, of course, the prose is important, but it's very important. I'm, I'm not you know, you know, you can typeset something that's beautiful, but it can still be rubbish. Do you know what I mean? But it's the two things put together are vital, I think.
1: Okay, so I think it's fair enough to say in your review, wonderful story, loved the book, blah, 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 but the paper wasn't very good or was too much italics. But then what star rating would you give that?
0: Well, I mean, you know, just think about the reviews is that there's no consistency about why people give certain reviews you know there's no set, set set of criteria against which everyone reviews right so it is a purely personal thing and, and one of the great advantages of the amazon ecosystem is that it does allow people to interact in that fashion and review the products on the website and it is a very important guide as to what you might be getting mm. um, and certainly the savvy buyer will go down and have a look no matter what the product is, whether it's a book or not. However, you can't expect people, you know, it's, it's a personal thing. So how many times have we spoken about one-star reviews based on the fact that somewhere in the delivery process, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: the uh, cardboard cover uh, around the book that it was delivered in was left in the rain or shoved in the letterbox so that it got crunched, mm. all that sort of thing, and that then gets a one-star review on a book that otherwise <laughs> gets five stars. So, you know, it is – you take it – I think people need to justify why they put their stars, um, and 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 very often they do. Um, and, you know, if you see a review that says, well, look, you know, it's a great story, but it's it's ruined by its presentation, so therefore three stars, then fair enough. You might say to yourself, well, okay – that's uh, that's disappointing. I might not buy it. You might buy it still because mm-hmm. you want the story. So, and but I think that that personally, I feel very strongly on the on this that at this day and age now, with self publishing, it isn't really acceptable to turn out something that looks like it's been done by a dot matrix printer, which a <laughs> lot of books did, and they give all independent published books, including our own, because we're a small independent publisher, a bad name whenever something like that goes into the market.
1: Yeah. Personally.
0: And I have I have books which I have bought, non-fiction stuff. There was one about the it was about the Second World War, which I bought, which was the biggest pile of trash I have ever read. It was so inaccurate, but it was also incredibly badly formatted and it hadn't really been edited properly. It was. It was like the. It was the brainchild of Chat GPT with Tourette's or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, it was rubbish. Absolute rubbish. And factually, was hugely incorrect.
1: Mm, okay. Well, and that's I gave a clear that. Case. <laughs> and I
0: gave that a one star review. Yeah. I don't often write reviews, but I gave that an absolute trashing.
1: Yeah. On on Amazon. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever given anything a bad review. I've only ever gone actively to Amazon when I've loved a book. Mm. It's interesting. Anyway, that, well, that was just an aside because it was just.
0: Well, uh, uh, yeah, well, you've opened up a can of worms there. <laughs> well, look, join in the debate. We had a lovely email this week um, which someone sent, you know, having seen um, Ali Morgan, A.B. Morgan, presenting uh, at the Amphill Literary Festival this weekend. Yeah. And we had a wonderful email about Hoback.
1: It was actually, yes, yeah, so it was someone she went to school with who had gone along to uh, watch Ali and had just started reading the first book and she was saying how much she loves the book and how um, much Ali had taught her about publishing, the difference between different publishers and how much support that we give Ali. So thank you, Ali, for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: checks in the post. Well, no, it probably isn't. But um, no, that's that was, you know, such things really make a difference oh, it, to us.
1: It was. I was watching TV last night and I saw it on my phone and it, I felt that warm glow of, oh, that's lovely, you know, happiness. and just... Yeah,
0: look, it's not easy because... <sighs> Goodness me. I mean, there are so many things shifting all the time that make life difficult for us. Just when you think you've got something, you know, sorted out, Amazon changed something, as we discussed yeah. at the beginning of the show. It, it, it's it's constant shifting, thing, you know, and sometimes we're ahead of the curve. Sometimes we're way behind it and it, we're catching up. But, you know, it's not through lack of effort. That's the trouble. Um, you know, it is hard work. Uh, just to remind you, of course, we are running promotional deals this month for National Crime reading month uh, as part of the CWA and our books currently at 99p 99 cents are
1: George Summit Bodies in the Water by, by AJ Aberford
0: AJ <laughs> <Aberford>. jo- yeah. <laughs> George jo- didn't
1: write the book The first no. book
0: in the George Samet series based in Malta <laughs> Cuz uh, he's
1: such a character he's such a prominent element of the series The server. Genesis
0: Inquiry by Ollie Jarvis
1: Absolutely and finally 7th the first in the Seventh Wave trilogy by Lewis Hastings
0: they're all great books. They're available for a short period more at that uh, knockdown rate of 99p, 99 cents.
1: And they will be replaced by three more on Thursday, but we're not revealing those three yet. I'm no,
0: we're not. Surprised. No, we're not. No. So please take advantage of that and get your hands on a fantastic Hobeck book. So I was going to lead on to say, look, if you want to drop us a line anytime for the podcast, our address is HobeckBooks at gmail.com. Our website is net. Our publishing services arm, archpub.net. And uh, you'll find all details of everything on those websites. And uh, we also announced last week, obviously, a new author to our to our list. In yes, Julia we Anderson.
1: did. Yes, we did. So that's, that so was exciting that news. That was
0: exciting news. So plenty to go at. And we've got busy weeks ahead, as indeed I'm sure you have. So we wish you... That's myself, Adrian Hobart.
1: And myself, Rebecca Collins.
0: A wonderful and...
1: Creative...
0: Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck Online Store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hopcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit.